Hello, 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 hello. This is Mika here. I haven't done one of these in a long time. This is a bonus uh, podcast. I just uploaded and edited, um, well, I just edited and uploaded uh, my weekly mic'd up uh, episode that was recorded for and um, in the OM Radio studio. So, um, that one, even though there's an explicit E marking on these podcasts, the ones for OM uh, that air on the radio and hopefully in the future where uh, we'll, that will air on additional stations across the state, um, those are super clean. Those are family friendly. Um, and what I'm aiming to do uh, is to do more of these, right? Have these conversations. Um, like these extra conversations, not so I can just, you know, get explicit, but so that I can share my thoughts a little more extensively, um, either about this week's topic, which was um, white gays, the white gays and culture here in Charleston. Um, but more specifically, I just wanted to come back because yesterday, because I'm in OM Studios and there's always a guest after me or more often than not, there's a guest after me or an own uh, studio, uh, own radio staff member that needs to lock up and, and, you know, head out for the weekend. I'm all sound like I'm more urgent and on a buzzer beater, right? And um, so yesterday was no exception. Um, I'm not mad at the content. I was well caffeinated as per usual. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, I just had a lot to say, and an hour sometimes isn't enough time. And if you guys are listening to uh, Mike'd Up regularly, you'll you'll hear switches, right? So you'll hear, you can tell audibly, you can you can discern that there's sometimes where I'm not in studio, and, and given the holiday schedule and whatnot, um, I wasn't in studio for some of the previous episodes. And you can hear, I could take my time. I record those episodes uh, typically from from my home on, on Wadmalaw Island in a closet, <laughs> which has plenty of clothes to help sound sound so you know good and, and and silky smooth um so and, and I'm also able to, able to just really be slow and methodical um I'm, I script some of those conversations uh I you know and I'm also able to um curate the videos and cut them up and edit them so like in the music even that I ch- that I'll choose to use which is also studio friendly Sometimes I have to edit the edit the curse words out. Um, it, my point is, it's so labor intensive that and painstaking, but in a good way that the show sounds like I'm not rushing to tell you everything that's on my mind or in my heart. <laughs> so um, what I wanted to do is just do that, right? But I'm not I'm not at home. You might be able to hear a little bit of an echo. I'm currently in the study room at the Wando uh, Library Branch of the Charleston County Library System. Um, shout out to this branch and the staff that works here. I love this library. I will travel 45 minutes just to, yeah, use the study rooms, but also um, to look at the offerings. It's so serene here. It's so it's so conducive to work. They have a quiet room which I really love outdoor space where you can, I take calls from. So it's almost like a co-working space, but not quite. Um, so I love working here. So I wanted to come and, and share my thoughts on, um, share more of my thoughts on yesterday's topic, because let me tell you something. I think this topic is what really drove me or really helped me find my voice as uh, an activist, as a citizen journalist, 
as a podcaster, as a cultural critic in my own right, uh, the topic of us divesting from the white gaze in Charleston and how, how imperative it is that we all acknowledge that what's driving the culture currently is um, is harmful to not only people of color, not only indigenous uh, folk here, not only to the Gullah Geechee folk here, it's harmful to everyone, white people included. When we are so married to white supremacy and how it manifests in the way of something that is seemingly benign, like the tourism industry and like the arts and culture scene here, when we don't really recognize when white supremacy is, is rearing its head and harming folk, we, we run into some bigger problems. And I think what we're seeing now, given the rapid or rampant growth in Charleston, you know, you choose the word, choose your own adventure with that one. Um, what, what we see with that is that now it's not just black folk and poor folk, um, you know, it's not just us hemming and hawing about, oh, we can't afford to live in Charleston. I'm seeing my friends, my white friends with college degrees and good jobs, like decent jobs. I'm seeing them having trouble accessing affordable housing in Charleston and um, having access to just even vacationing in their own city. In fact, I remember a few years ago when I was a blogger um, with Pink Verbena, I remember, and I'm not going to disclose her name, but this young lady worked at Blackboard. So she worked in STEM. She worked in tech. Um, and I know that any job, I know her job was not, you know, you know, a low level job. She had a, a, a decent job with Blackboard, and she even mentioned how if she wanted to vacation in her own city, she couldn't afford it. Like staying at the Dewberry is not a joke. That's, that's a mortgage payment for one night. I'm not even exaggerating. Um, and so I don't know if there's a Groupon hustle or a hack. Y'all let me know, but, um, it's really hard to enjoy Charleston, even if you're just working class, middle class, it's cost prohibitive. And so what does that have to do with, with the white gaze? Well, because the thing that's, that's driving that type of growth and that type of displacement and that type of sprawl, and that type of uh, overdevelopment and, and, and uh, the West Edges and all these other projects, the Bennett families, you know, take rip, you know, grabbing up every nook and cranny of the peninsula, that's all informed by white supremacy. And also it's informed by the value systems established by the city. And I know for all y'all who are very, very fond of Mayor Riley um, and made him some sort of like mascot, I, I would really, um, I would really encourage you all to really just be critical in your review of his record and what it has wrought. Um, take a deep dive into some of his, his decision making. And um, I would say he made some really interesting choices. Um, I'll be generous enough to characterize them as that. But those choices, some of those choices have led to the displacement of so many people, you know, um, and, and so many challenges with the infrastructure and having access, both literal access to the peninsula and um, access in terms of economic employment, um, economic um, access, rather, employment, you name it, right? Even like um, some of the food festivals, and, and and also too, if you really take a look at our tourism and in our, our tourism and our culture uh, scene, you'll also see that these are really just industries that have really taken over. And so, um, you know, I know in, in a lot of different cities, tourism and the arts are separate entities, and I'm not quite sure how and how this works, right? How tourism and then how 
how, you know, the Visitors Bureau and all that, how that works. Um, but what we see is that major industries here actually drive the culture. So because they're selling you, hey, come live here, because they're wooing big industries and then the families of those in, of those executives, um, the real estate industry is, is heavily invested in making sure that they concoct a certain image. So therefore, you get the Seth and Tory Bolts on the cover of Charleston Home and Mom. So they're trying to woo that. Um, and so you also see... Now, granted, there are some really hardworking folks behind Charleston Food and Wine, behind Seaweed, um, behind, um, you just named the festival that, that occurs around springtime. There are so many hardworking people involved with that, right? Tastemakers and all that other stuff. Um, but also what you'll see is that those festivals are beholden to a specific industry. And this is what I would challenge you to do. Look at the restaurants that don't participate in Charleston food and wine. And then look at the ones who do. Look at the ticket costs. Look at the costs associated with uh, attending some of those events and activities. Pay close attention to that. And then if you have the relationship or you're able to, um, you know, maybe saddle up to a proprietor that is that has has clearly chosen not to participate in Charleston Food and Wine, ask them why, and you'll probably get some really interesting responses. And so that's what I'm saying. So it's not the people, it's not the local appetite that's being um, uh, courted. It's actually some other outside forces. And I think it's important to, again, don't completely divorce that from white supremacy. There, there, there's a, there is a very whitewashed tourism that's being sold and when black folk are engaged it's usually at an interesting now it is a little bit more diverse than I think I let people um that I give credit no 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 no. let me say it the right the right way there is some diversity but it's in interesting places like what I've seen now is um the emergence of the influencer culture here Again, I moved down here. I myself wanted to be a blogger, a home improvement blogger. Um, I wanted to talk about why I chose Charleston to be my home and what inspires me and and talk about fun hacks and DIY. That's something I explored. Um, And in that pursuit, I saw this emergence of influencer culture, bloggers, fashion bloggers, um, crafters, people who own businesses and sell goods and and, and whatnot, um, lifestyle bloggers, so on and et cetera. So that boom has also brought, um, has also made it possible for certain bloggers to be become marketing vehicles for these festivals. So you'll see a couple of chocolate chips, a couple of brown faces um, in um, you know promoting certain festivals. So you'll see that, and that's where you'll see more diversity in that realm. Um, but you don't see enough diversity uh, in the really mega, the huge, um, the, like especially seaweed. Like seaweed is is just really, to me, it, it looks like a lot of family fun. And for those who love, you know, pets and wildlife, but it, it, it's completely marketed to white folk. Like I'm sure black people will participate. Um, I haven't paid attention to the previous couple of years of seaweed, um, but I know um, that it is just completely marketed to white folks. As if my neighbor Henry doesn't hunt. As if my daddy ain't never fished off the bridge that connects Wadmer Law to uh, to Johns Island. As, as if my my grandmother didn't, you know, know how to maybe like I don't know. I don't want to say 
<laughs> know how to like take a chicken and make it into a meal. <laughs> Let me say that. Um, you know, you know, black folk uh, are just as much invested in wildlife and 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 cold and you know being outside and, and being you know hunt hunters and. And, you know, sporting, you know, people who like to shoot for sport and whatnot, that's a big part of a lot of, um, in fact, one of my best friends when I, when I went to high school here in the nineties in Charleston, um, one of my best friends used to call me cause I was so city-fied, even though I was raised in the suburbs of Jersey and, um, they would always like eat blackberries. They would, could identify a blackberry and then eat it. And I'd be like, what? You know, and they would, they would like pick, pick at me because I didn't understand how like, how culture, how art, not culture, how nature worked. And they were the first one to introduce me to this whole world of black folk who went fishing, who were oystermen and, you know, fishermen and shrimpers and, and all of that. Um, and, and, and that's something I don't see enough of that lifted up during the seaweed. There's such a complexity. There's such a a, a deep and vast history of all these things, but there's been a, a conscious choice, and I will never call it unconscious. It's a, it, there's a deliberate uh, act to just sell a certain type of um, cultural experience here, and so that's what I'm challenging folks to do: is say, hey, and not don't just fight for representation. Um, that's something I'm going to be a little bit more um, careful with in terms of my um, explanation of all this. Don't just fight for, oh, Mika says something interesting. Let me see if Food and Wine wants to hire her. It's not, it's not enough for me to just be the sole token for a festival, even though I will take that check. Don't get it wrong. Don't get it wrong. Like, I will take that check, um, and, and I will, whatever you put me in that's whitewashed and problematic, I, I will break it, just so you know that. I've, I've told people that, like, if you want me to participate in something white-led and liberal and all that, like, that fake type of uh, activism, I will take the check and I will break your event. I will say something devastatingly honest and um, informed by scholarly research, but I'm not there to perform tokenism for you. I'm there to, to really just uh, speak truth to power and, and dismantle the very systems that keep people like me out of spaces um so what i'm but i what i would challenge folk to do is like bring me into the boardroom bring me and my and my cohorts and my comrades into the boardroom where we can we can shape the way those festivals operate i'd like to be a solution to the problem not a token in the game does that make sense i don't want to be a a a a Board, I guess, yeah, I'm not thinking of like Candyland. <laughs> I don't want to just be a piece on the board. Notice how I didn't say chess. <laughs> I love candy. I don't want to be just, a, you know, a, a, a piece on this game board. I want to actually be the one constructing, helping to, to shape that universe that is uh, culture and tourism here in the low country. So it'd be more effective if you really are bothered by the whitewash tourism, if you really are bothered by the Charleston home and design folk propping up, uh, fraudulent, um, uh, you know, fraudulent hucksters like the bolts, you know, it's not enough to just say, Hey, feature this black couple. You need to know, I need to know who's on the staff that's informing some of these editorial, you know, well, what of um, Southern living are we not paying attention to, right? So, and I get it, like Charleston Home and Design is supposed to sell Charleston, supposed to, to sell homes, opulent homes um, designed for the wealthy. 
we already know that the prop that the magazine in and of itself is problematic, but um, it, they can always do better. Anyone can always, any company can always do better. Like I don't identify as a capitalist, but or at least um, any company that I might have to, I, like I have to have a Verizon. Um, I have to have a phone, and I choose Verizon because I live in a rural place, and that has proven to me. Sp- Right now in 2020, it's proven to me Verizon is the best like um, phone carrier, right? But uh, if I have a problem with Verizon and, and their politics, um, I can challenge them to do better. Um, it won't change. And that was a really bad analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Like we all have to engage with aspects of our oppression. Um, we all have to engage with things, but the what we can challenge those systems to be better. It's about um, what does Latasha always say? It's about um, harm reduction. Latasha Brown from um, Black Voters Matter. It's about harm reduction. So we can reduce harm and we can mitigate harm as much as possible and in, in certain ways. That's the goal. The goal sometimes can't be to completely dismantle a system, but the goal has to be, hey, how can I mitigate harm? How can I um, uh, anguish? So um, what I wanted to do on this one, though, I, there were two clips I didn't get to play yesterday. And y'all excuse the noisiness. Um Again, I'm in I'm in the library and um, I can hear. I know this mic is like a serious mic, so you might be able to hear stuff in the background, like doors opening and shutting, shutting next to me. All right, so I, there were two clips that I was not able to play yesterday um, on the radio because I blabbered for like 30 minutes, just like I just did. And I'm gonna play. It's a, I wanted to play more from the Tony Morrison um, documentary that was released last year. Um, during the show yesterday, I was able to play the clip where she's talking about how she divested from the white gaze and writer um, when she stopped trying to capitulate to whiteness and white sensibilities and white taste. It opened her up to write more, I guess, um, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but it opened her up. She said she can write anything about anybody for anyone. It, so um, that was interesting. But there was another aspect of the documentary where her her peers advocated for her to get recognition and they didn't understand why she didn't win the uh, National Book Award after authoring um, Beloved. And so I want to play a clip from um, that portion of, I mean, I'm going to move the mic so you're going to hear a lot of squeaking or some squeaking. Um, yeah, let me, I, don't, I can't remember how long this clip is, but I'm just going to hit play. Despite the international stature of Toni Morrison, she has yet to receive the national recognition that her five major works of fiction entirely deserve. She has yet to receive the Keystone Honors of the National Book Award or the Pulitzer Prize. 48 black writers and critics wrote a letter supporting her work that was published in the New York Times. We wanted really to make clear to Tony our gratitude, and we wanted to do that specifically in relationship to Beloved, but also an acknowledgement of uh, the meaning of the life work of Tony Morrison. Everyone recognized the brilliance of Morrison. It wasn't just because she was brilliant on a page, but she meant so much to us. And for her to be ignored was just the proverbial straw. My grandmother used to say to me sometimes, come over here, girl, let me shake some sense into you. <laughs> what we were doing as writers said we were shaking some sense 
and to this American literary establishment saying, come on, come off it. What our goal was, was to sing a praise song for Toni Morrison, who has moved the entire group Afro-American culture, Afro-American expressive culture forward by quantum leaps. So our goal was to say, we love you, Toni, and you're doing extraordinary work for us. It was a scandal. We were all incredulous that she had not been given that honor. Her community in this country represented that there was something, you know, really racist and misogynist about the ways in which these literary prizes were functioning. It was an eruption. What we were seeing then really was that kind of collision between the canon up to that point and the emerging canon that Tony was exemplifying. No matter what side you were on, you could say something is happening here, Mr. Jones. <laughs> you don't know what it is, do you? Jimmy Baldwin had just died. And for all of his brilliance, he really had never gotten the attention he deserved or the prizes he deserved. And then we began to talk about what it means to get an award. And so I said very dramatically, oh, Jimmy, we teach you. <laughs> and you will live forever, <laughs> you know, because we have taught you for years and years, and everyone knows you. And he looked at me like I was completely insane. He said, Sonia, I'm not talking about you teach you. That's good. I'm talking about an award. <laughs> I deserve an award. Tony deserved an award. I had had a conversation with Gwendolyn Brooks Okay, I'm going to stop it there. I thought that was just like, to me, I watched that a couple of times. Um, uh, it really, to me, encapsulate. I, I know some people might be like questioning, well, why are you using like these literary references? Um, but it's all about culture, correct? So I'm talking about white culture here or the culture here. So that's arts, that's history, that's... Um, you know, that's food, that's cuisine culture, that's that's all of that. And um, what I see in Toni Morrison's life story and her experience as, a, as an accomplished writer, as a capable writer, is that even someone who transcended, you know, um, so many other writers, she found she had experienced great difficulty being recognized by these institutions. And quite, quite honestly, that occurs everywhere. That that occurs in the music industry. That occurs in the classroom. That that uh, my mom always talks about how she specifically struggled getting into nursing schools. Um, and when they did let in people, she felt it was randomized, right? She didn't believe it was a meritocracy. She believed it was randomized, like they would take only a couple of tokens. And um, she did think it was also predicated upon, like, um, she thought people use uh, skin color, which we already have evidence of that. That's documented in, in, in a lot of literature that um, when white folk would accept black folk into certain things, institutions, or um, in certain vocation, in certain in certain fields, it'd be the lighter complected, um, the closer to whiteness as possible. Um, so colorism was a, was another hurdle my mom had to surmount on top of being black, being cash poor, being a single mother, um, and being from the South and having a thick accent. She also had to navigate, um, you know, uh, you know, being a, a, a chocolatey, beautiful chocolatey woman. <laughs> um, my point is like, so, so there's so many barriers for us to even, um, to even exist 
And so there's so many barriers to entry. And when you don't acknowledge and recognize uh, the works of someone like a Toni Morrison or the Toni Morrisons that occur in everyday culture um, throughout the South that just are, come from so many different other back, different backgrounds, when we don't acknowledge them, um, they become less real. They And a lot of folks think that they are outliers. And, and so there's a thing about, well, exceptional blackness only looks a certain way. We start to kind of uh, really do some really interesting things around uh, where can um, where can cap- capability, where, where can uh, aptitude exist and who who has a right to it? Who has a right to um, uh, to genius? Who has a right to brilliance? Who can cultivate it? Who, what race or what culture of people can actually create brilliance? And when we lock doors and we create barriers to entry um, for, pe- for people, when we don't um, value the profundity that exists on a Wadmala Island or on an Edisto or down, you know, like deep down in rural nooks and crannies of the South, when we don't honor and uplift these people for their brilliance, the brilliance that exists there, we don't recognize the Gullah Geechee uh, language as a viable language. We bastardize it. When, when, we, when we don't do those things, we create the problem that we have here now where um, whiteness is the ideal. So therefore, whiteness is the standard by which we measure uh, everything else. So if it doesn't meet these, um, like, yeah, if, if, like, if Elizabethan poetry is your standard of excellence, then you'll never find the Gwendolyn Brooks or the Langston Hughes. You'll never find usefulness for them or you'll never see the beauty within what they create. So we have to decolonize the way we are in South Carolina. There's, um, well, in Charleston and throughout the the world. I almost curse and I can curse, but I don't want to curse. I'm trying to just like, yeah. Um, let me see. There was one more clip too. So yesterday I played a clip of uh, Bell Hooks um, and it's Bell Hooks, she's speaking on the importance or her role in cultural criticism. And, you know, again, like I said yesterday, I, I, I encountered Bell Hooks's work uh, via her radical black feminist theory. But I was so, this year specifically, I was so um, encouraged by what I saw or what I read from her where she decided to unpack and dissect um uh, you know, uh, pop culture and, and cinema in so many different ways. And so this portion of the clip from yesterday, um, she speaks on that. She speaks on like, um, well, she speaks on images in Hollywood and who's able to make them, who's able to co-sign images. And before this clip, though, real quick, she showed like all of these really violent sex scenes in like 90s, 1990s cinema. Like there was a scene where, I, I don't know if it was consensual sex because I, I I didn't watch Basic Instinct. I haven't watched that movie in years. If I had, I don't even think I watched it. I think I just know the, the you know, the leg crossing scene that's like seared in my, <laughs> seared in my brain, unfortunately. Um, uh, but... Yeah, there's a scene where I guess a woman is having her panties ripped off, and she's like, "Well, who who's who's in Hollywood is saying, yeah, this is what sex looks like. This is what a heat uh, heated sex scene looks like, and it's usually white men making some of these decisions, and they're able to kind of just um, shape our taste and our expectations of what like they shape the culture." So a young boy watching that, maybe coming of age or, or or even a frat boy or something watching that and thinking that that's consensual sex when it looks to me like rape. 
<laughs> um, and again, I didn't watch the scene in Basic Instinct. I just see a woman um, resisting um, Mr. Douglas's advances and her panties being ripped off. So I, I whatever. But this clip doesn't have that. It's more about uh, Braveheart. And another movie I haven't seen, but I, so many men I've dated have seen Braveheart. But let me just play this clip from Bell Hooks, and then she'll explain it way better than I do. All the Americans who've never, ever in their lives for one, you know, second thought about Scotland and Ireland, who went to see Braveheart, who suddenly, like, put notions of British imperialism and the freedom of, of, of Ireland on, on their little social maps because of a Hollywood movie. I was truly awed by how much a Hollywood film could like totally alter people's perceptions of national liberation struggles globally in a way that would call attention to those who, who, are, who are, in a sense, the underclass in those struggles. And that is also the power of white male privilege. White male stardom, I mean, it, it's important for people to look at who produced and directed that film. Because it, it's not just that Hollywood can do that, it's that specific liberal white men who are moneyed within the context of Hollywood can produce whatever images that they want to produce. I mean, that last sentence, and, and I kind of stopped and started it abruptly. That last sentence, though. So, uh, like, that's the thing. Who's producing these things? Who's greenlighting, you know, what happens, um, what what we see during Spoleto, right? Who's who's saying, hey, this is this is the theme this year. These are the, the this is some of the feedback we've gotten. Um, this is something we think we should pay more attention to. Hey, there's an aspect of Charleston culture, a low country culture that we've, uh, you know, systemically ignored for years. Like, who's shaping the tastes in Charleston? And you, 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 you gotta understand. Like, to me, I think white men, of course, white men with money, white men of industry with money, absolutely. But we do not ever want to. Um, I think a lot of uh, feminists like to kind of. Um, uh, they kind of like to let white women off a little bit easy because white women have always been the vanguard of taste and culture in Charleston. I mean, you just look at what the Daughters of the Confederacy did um, with education, with with history, like write, rewriting, literally rewriting history, um, propping up the um, the lost cause narrative, um, uh ravaging our, our school's textbooks with, with um, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, and lies. Um, and so white women have been um, at the forefront of some really gnarly things, to put it, put it mildly. So I want us to also investigate the type of femininity a type of feminism that we subscribe to here in Charleston as well. And if you're kind of uh, beholden to white feminism, and you don't know what I mean when I say white feminism, no, white feminism doesn't mean... Um, uh, you know, some of your favorite white white women of history are bad. No, white feminism is when white... I, I don't want to give you a definition that's not the most accurate one, but just it's something that's still wedded with uh, wedded to white supremacy, essentially. 
Um, you know, a case in point, my experience with Women's March Charleston, or rather Women's March South Carolina, not Charleston. Courtney is amazing. Um, but Women's March Charleston, uh, South Carolina, um, I competed with a lot of white feminists who um, they wanted me to run things and do things. But whenever I raised objections or, or wanted to pivot, I was met with a lot of resistance. And I was told that I was either being violent um, or ber I was berating them when I was maybe uh, raising my voice to make my point, um, you know, which is not berating anyone. Um, uh, yeah, because, you know, black women aren't, aren't entitled to rage or be upset, right? We've never had a heated debate at work, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, anyway, so um, that was a lot of white feminism informing that they would let the black woman do the work and the labor, but they didn't really want to hear from her in terms of how she would um, kind of change the way leadership works and how, hey, how about we center the voice, how we, we center people with disabilities, you know, and uh, feature them prominently and make sure that, they, that we accommodate them. They don't want to hear stuff like that from me. They want to just make sure that I sell t-shirts. Um, and set up websites, which is what happened. So, um, so yeah. So um, I just wanted to play those two clips. I wanted to come back and just kind of be a little bit more uh, coherent, a little more. Let me stop acting like I'm not coherent. I am coherent. I'm just passionate. And um, when I'm in the radio studio, um, I am on the clock, essentially. So sometimes my thoughts sound hurried and frantic. So I wanted to supplement yesterday's conversation with a couple of more, a couple additional thoughts, a couple of additional thoughts. <laughs> um, I hope you all are enjoying the content. Please give me feedback. I really would love more feedback. Um, thank you to all those who either subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thank you for those who are still riding with me on Patreon. You can support me. Even $1 a month is helpful um, on Patreon. And I am resolving um, I was anti-resolution but I, I'm going to get back I'm going to give myself grace I'm resolving to create better content create content more frequently than once a week um, and uh, do more for my followers on Patreon to really just say thank you to express my gratitude for supporting me for this long and and um, even when I'm at my my most uh, caffeinated, <laughs> espresso-filled self, you all still rock with me and you get what I'm trying to say and you appreciate the books and you appreciate the, the tweets and, and the Facebook posts. So thank you all for listening. Uh, please, like I said, send me feedback. I'll include all my contact information in the show notes. All right, until next time, y'all. Um, I'm not going to say stay black. What am I going to say? See you next time. That's it. <laughs> Bye.